Welcome to Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm your host, Amy Allison. And with me now is Tim Molina, our political insider. Tim's a political director of Courage Campaign. He's a go-to person for stats analysis on the grand intel and so much more. Hey, Tim. Hey, Amy. How's it going? Very, very good. And today, you and I are going to be talking to the powerhouse Rashida Tlaib. She was the first Muslim woman elected to the state house of representatives in Michigan. And now she's back running for U.S. Congress. I want to go there and I want to start a movement to impeach him as soon as possible. He's impeachable. This is an interesting race because this seat has always been considered a black congressional caucus seat. And Rashida is a Palestinian woman who's running along with 12 candidates. We're going to get into all this in greater detail in a moment in our conversation with Rashida Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib, welcome to Democracy in Color. Thank you for having me. You were born and raised in Detroit, huh? Yes. Being a Detroiter is pretty special and unique. And I always tell people if there's anywhere in the country you could look to where there's a tremendous amount of strength and where people have survived tremendous amount of challenges, it's the city I grew up in. How did your family come to live in Detroit? Well, my father came to the United States at 19 years old. He was born in Palestine near Jerusalem, a little village called Beatanina. And he uh, went to Nicaragua when he was about nine or 10 years old, grew up there, and then from there joined his father, who already had immigrated to the United States, my grandfather. And, uh, you know, he started working at Ford Motor Company. Years later, met my mother. And then she immigrated here from the West Bank in Palestine. And they landed in, you know, what is referred to as the Southwest portion of Detroit, We grew up there, went to all Detroit public schools. It was very unique, but at the same time, I think it really opened my eyes. I look at how my children are growing up in a diverse community in other areas and where I meet other public servants that kind of grew up in maybe, you know, majority white or even majority African-American communities. I think my lens is very different in that I don't like leaving people behind because I know what it feels like, but I also know how strong we can be, and not only as having Palestinian immigrant parents, but also growing up in Detroit, not knowing English when I first started school and being the eldest of 14. I mean, the challenges, I think, actually made me a better public servant. You're the eldest of 14? Yes. I have seven younger brothers, six younger sisters. That <laughs> I tell people all the time, you know, everybody thinks it's my law degree or my community organizing work, which did obviously strengthen my experience for the legislature and for running for Congress. But I think being the eldest of 14 best prepared me to serve others. How so? Because I've dealt with chronic unemployment. I've dealt with domestic abuse, uh, mental illness. I mean, my brothers and sisters will kill me because I get calls afterwards. Why do you have to say that they're going to know that I'm the alcoholic in the family? And I say, no, there's too many of you to figure out who's who. But I think being kind of that third parent, you know, I was my mother's translator until I was about 12, 13 years old. And I helped my brothers and sisters get through challenges in their personal life. I still do. And I really do think they prepared me to take on bigger fights like I am now. It's got to feel vulnerable to talk so intimately about your family and your own personal experience. It does. I mean, I don't know if you hear it. I, get, I do get emotional. I mean, I, I more get emotional of the fact that my grandmother, who was completely literate, she didn't speak or write Arabic. And, you know, to think uh, she was here today, I mean, 
she would be absolutely floored that her granddaughter is running for Congress. You came out of the immigrant rights activism, and we're in this environment where Trump has directly been attacking immigrants, as as we all know, and also attacking sanctuary cities and sanctuary states. Heck, he was just uh, in Timonized State in California, sent Jeff Sessions over there and right. is uh, attacking the uh, the governor. So this is this is a real thing. So when you come from a district and you come from immigrant organizing, what could you, uh, as an elected member of Congress, do about this whole situation of using immigrants as a punching bag and also the direct legislation that's impacting? Well, you know, it's, it's about punching back. I think my son said it best, you know, I started Moms Against Trump here in the metro Detroit area, and it's been wonderful. And, you know, we all talk about giving him a timeout, but what kind of timeout are we talking about? It's being able to not continue repeating what he's saying, right, and, and focusing on that, but actually focusing on some of the specific actions he's done regarding the tax bill and regarding a number of other actions. He's, you know, even just appointing DeVos as the head of education, that speaks volumes of what he thinks about public education in our country. And so it's about redirecting my families into focusing on how do we organize from within ourselves to make sure that he is not reelected. And to be honest, I mean, Amy, I want to go there and I want to start a movement to impeach him as soon as possible. He's impeachable. Okay. You know what? First of all, I just sat up in my chair. Both Tim and I are like, yes. yes. <laughs> I do not know why more Democrats are not talking in that vein. There's a couple. But tell me why you think he's impeachable at this moment, because it seems like he's Teflon so far. No, he's not. And I, I think, again, it's the lack of courage. And we need to stand up to the fact that he has committed crimes. And no one, no one wants to call him that, but that's what they are. The fact that he's lied to the American people over and over again. And let me tell you, look, I mean, he is the president and the people underneath him and everybody else that's being thrown under the bus. No, he is the bus. So I think he is the bus. Yes, I he love is. Yes. He is. <laughs> yes. I am going to make a heck of a juror when I get there because that's what we need. We need to elect oh, yeah. a jury that has the courage to stand up yeah. to everyone else, the establishment, which does include Democrats, everyone else. And I do not want to play these political games. You know, I hear some of my colleagues say to me, well, it's great that he's there. Look at all the movement. I said, no. They're not out there supporting you. They're against him, of course. But what the heck are you all doing right now? This man is dangerous. Do you know how long it's going to take yes. to really address the harm he's caused? It's going to take years, Amy. That's what I'm saying. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry. What, I, I, I got my marching no, orders. Yes. I'm not playing games. Okay. This Running for Congress is hard. I'm not going there unless I can impeach Heck him and get yeah, rid of this boy. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. We're, we have not yet heard this kind of fierceness in these interviews. Tim, come on. Listen, but this is the moment we need. We need folks to rise to this occasion. That's what people are looking for. People are looking for that courage and that leadership. So They deserve it. They're not even looking for it. They deserve yes. it. Yes. Can you run in California? We need you in the Michigan, but I also... Uh, say, I think I'm needed here. Yes, you, know, you are. Yeah. Let me tell you something about Wayne County families. You know, from Detroit to all 11 others, they have really been left behind, even by, you know, the Conyers legacy and everything with redistricting. Everything that's been happening to them has been this constant cycle. And I'm just ready. I'm just ready to show them what they deserve and show them that they deserve the respect and deserve a seat at the table. And I got to hit the doors and got to convince people to look beyond my faith and beyond the fact that I have a funny name. I think or you have, what do you it's mean? A it's a classic. How, um, how many? Let's you. just establish this. Rashida is a very old, old name. 
comes from... I've been called Rashida, Sharita, my favorite Rashida is Sharita. Rashida itself is a very old, beautiful name. What does it mean? It means wise. See, it means that. wise. It probably also means fighter. <laughs> because <laughs> I just love this wise, also very sure defender of uh, freedoms. Anyway, let me not, let me get off my soapbox and just say there are criticisms I'm hearing from you for Democrats not doing enough and being inspirational enough. What do you want to see out of Democrats more going forward to 2018? Yeah. And how does that influence how you're running your campaign? What do you want to do? Absolutely. Let me tell you, Congressman Conyers, when I was a young girl after 9-11, I remember he was one of the few that was courageous enough to vote against the Patriot Act. He was also one of the few that came to the Arab American community right after 9-11. We were talking about within a week and had a public hearing about civil rights and civil liberties when everyone else was running the opposite way. The one incredible thing about Congressman Conyers as well is that he would show up at protests regarding water shutoffs, like side by side with real families and residents. I mean, this is a man that was elected during a movement in the city of Detroit around poverty and economic justice. I remember one of my residents telling me that when the HIV virus was very prominent in our country and how people wouldn't even want to be in the room and they thought they would contract it and it, Congressman Conyers showed up at a clinic and shook the hands of those that were infected. It was such a huge issue. I mean, people forget that. People want that kind of courage back. They want somebody that will stand up and push back and not be so afraid and, you know, voting the right way and then going home and showing up with these tributes and resolutions, but not really being engaged on the ground. And that's what we're missing. We really desire that. And I'm hoping to continue that type of legacy that that he started. Unfortunately, as a person that's been a victim of sexual harassment myself, I truly believe that those survivors are telling the truth about what happened. And I also, though, believe that people around him allowed it to also happen and continue for too long. And I'm not afraid to to be critical of that because I do believe this is not like a one person thing and he's, you know, pushed out. It should have been something that was addressed party wide in regards to what was happening to women in the workplace. Yeah. Uh it's tough because he does have that uh, history. Well, let's talk about the complication. Well, first of all, John Conyers was in the seat. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the civil rights movement. He was an icon, but he was really forced to resign under allegations of the uh, inappropriate sexual behavior. The Me Too movement got him, in other words. And so you as a woman are running to replace him, and that feels very significant, but also feels complicated. How do you understand your entry around race and around gender politics, this race is really bringing to the fore. Yeah. You know, I talk about as a different legacy of civil rights uh, movement these days. I mean, with what's going on in our country right now and who's standing up, I think it's a different, beautiful array of rainbow of color of people standing up from those that are in the LGBTQ community to those that are women, to those that are my friend Stacey Abrams, who's running uh, to become the first African-American governor in, in Georgia. I mean, there's so many people that have been ignited um, to want not only make history, it's so much more than that. It's to continue again this kind of movement. And, you know, some call it the social justice movement, some call it the civil rights movement, but it is a movement. It's a movement to want to do better and to want to stand up and fight back on those that attack our country, even if it's internal.
You're listening to Democracy in Color. And before we get back into our conversation with Rashida Tlaib, let's take a little step back and see how this race fits into the bigger election picture this year. Rashida Tlaib is something else, isn't she? Yeah, she's huge. She's like, feels like the future. She feels like the future. Feels like the future. Let's start by breaking down her odds in her home state of Michigan. What are her chances? Yeah, well, right now I think she does have a tough fight ahead of her. I think the primary is going to be everything in this election, like it is in a lot of these big races. But man, she's running up against over 10 candidates, Democratic candidates in this primary. So she has a lot of standing out to do. And she's running up against, you know, some folks from the Conyers family as well. I was really excited to hear her talk about impeachment. Yeah, totally. She's got an agenda that's uh, super bold. Right. How do you think that's going to play? I think it will resonate. I also think in her time in the state legislature in Michigan, she really made an impact and influence, which is why she's a real candidate in this race. I think she represents a couple of things. One, we're seeing there's something like, you know, different numbers show 13 percent approval rate in Congress. So in a lot of ways, if she wins this race, which if she wins in the primary, she's done. Like there is there's really no chance Republicans ever going to have. It's the blue, it's, like a yeah. real blue district. <laughs> it's Detroit. It's a heart of the Democratic base in, in Michigan in a lot of ways. So if she wins a primary, she's in. And what she fights for around, yes, impeachment and the vision she fights for is what people across the country, especially, you know, Democrats and, and folks who would vote on the left, are looking for. And she could be a leader in Congress. So it, you see, it, I think that matters a lot because yeah. uh, Trump won Michigan by such a small, like 10,000 yeah. votes or small, Ugh, small, small 1%. number. <laughs> and part of it is that I think to win in 2020, the presidential candidate who wins that state is going to have to have really, really strong congressional leadership as well as down ballot to actually help with turnout. Right. And that's the thing. It's not just getting more Democrats in Congress. It's getting more leaders that will reshape the party or lead and be visionaries for the party and for Congress. Yeah. So, How's the campaigns? How are they heating up? Yeah, things are picking up pretty quickly out here for anyone outside of Michigan or if you might have already seen. Again, there's a lot of people running in the primary. So she's got a lot of work to do to turn out. The good thing is it's just a regular general primary, not like in California where there's two Democrats run against each other in the general. You know, she's pretty well known in certain parts of Detroit, but she still needs to kind of get her name out there beyond there. Another big thing that stands out about this is what's possible, what Congress could look like in two, four, ten years. There's a rising Muslim and Arab-American communities growing throughout the country. So I think people are going to look up to her if she gets elected or or are you looking up to her. We're seeing the Democratic Party reshaping before our eyes, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, it would have to do a lot to reshape. Yes, a long way to go. uh, You have people like Conyers Mm -hmm. before his Me Too moment. He was known as a pretty staunch uh, progressive. So he has that legacy. But in a sense, she's bringing a new fire. Do you think she's affecting the overall campaigns of the other Democrats who are running in that area? Yeah, that one's hard to tell. We're hoping whoever wins that primary is going to be at least the most visionary, more excited, most inspiring candidate to make it if it's not Rashida. One thing I also want to say is that, yes, though Trump won Michigan by only tens of thousands of votes, that was because of low voter turnout in the more urban, safe blue counties. This race is so important because we need more inspiring congressional races, especially in the midterms, to get people to turn out, especially those folks of color in those more urban working class communities. And hopefully she can help do that. Other candidates like yeah, her can do I, that. I think you're right. Well, she's one to watch for the primary. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Tim. It's always good to hear your insights. And in a moment, we'll get back to the second part of our interview with Rashida Tlaib. I got to get Tim's take because 
when we talk about politics and your run, we cannot ignore the fact that Trump won Michigan. That's right. How are you thinking about uh, the state's politics leading up to 2018, Tim? This race is one of the most important races in Michigan and one that a lot of people looking at across the country. It means a lot of things because, yes, it, it is a race in a safe blue seat. But as we know, Trump won this state by 1%, right? You know, very close, but it was very telling and the who turned out was very telling. We saw a lot of people color and voter turnout decrease in the safe blue counties, uh, counties with a lot of people color, a lot of black voters. And we saw increase in voter turnout with more working class white voters in some of the more rural parts of the state. So very interesting and telling and was, was not the only story in the Midwest where we saw that, that occur. So really curious about what this race means in that context. Do you agree, Rashida Tlaib, about the assessment, black voter drop off, and an increase in white voters is really why Trump took the state in 2016? You know, I have mixed feelings about it. I know here in my backyard in Michigan, I mean, you know, having our state for the first time since Reagan go red was pretty devastating, especially the birthplace of the labor movement, the birthplace, again, for a different number of movements. Well, the Democrats thought they had it in their pocket. Absolutely. And, you know, look, I think it's a wake-up call of the fact that myself, I'm a Democrat, but God, am I sick and tired of the lip service from some of my Democratic colleagues. They're not stepping up. We're not hearing enough about, like, you know, we want action, right? And that means sometimes going beyond the voting in the, on the floor of the Congress, like coming back home and being part of the movement. Yeah, where's the party failed then? Well, their work ethic and not being on the ground. You know, people want to say, okay, they take us for granted and all this stuff. But at the same time, what are we doing? Are we doing the kind of field work? What I loved about President Obama's campaign, and I worked on his campaign in 2008, was so outcome-driven. You would walk in as a volunteer, and they'd say, go out there and register 100 people to vote. They didn't give you a list of people to go, you know, to engage. You came up with a list of 100 people. There was a difference in really how they engaged people that wanted to vote and wanted to be out there and support the right folks. And I think that kind of engagement did not happen this time around, and that's unfortunate. What are you doing on the ground right now in your campaign that you think would change that whole oh, story? Oh, I am very much a grassroots door-to-door person. I Wait, you're on the door? You're, you're yes, knocking on doors knocking right on now? Doors. Yeah, I'm going out door-to-door. I'm doing these community conversations at local libraries. And you might think, oh, well, that's other people are doing it. You'd be surprised. Many of my colleagues are hoping to inherit the seat. Uh, many of the my opponents are expecting to put their name on the ballot and kind of wave through. They're not doing the grassroots part. You know, I got like four or five precinct delegates that contacted me, and they were just shocked to get a letter from me saying, I want your help. They want to help. People are waiting to be asked to be engaged and to help. And I think a lot of us don't understand that direct human contact is needed to do that. Mm. I read that you had a cell phone policy where people can reach out to you directly on the cell phone. How are you managing the direct communication with this huge uh, swath of the public in a way that's effective? I try my best. Because I I can't do it. Let me just say, you're running for Congress. I can't even do it. So I (laughs) look, I haven't ran for Congress before. And so we'll see. I mean, there's a lot more families. But, you know, I like being accessible. There is some thrill, I got to tell you, in doing constituent services myself. I love the fact that sometimes I'll call families myself because maybe they call my cell and and handled, uh, you know, a utility shutoff or water shutoff issue or, you know, they're dealing with foreclosure. They don't know really who to call and they might start with me. When I call them back, they're just talking. They say, well, thank Rashida. I said, oh, it is Rashida. They're like, what? I was like, yeah, it's me. And then they're like, you didn't say it was you. I was like, well, I didn't think it was necessary. It's okay. I mean, as long as your lights are back on and or as long as you connected with this, you know, free legal services, 
I love taking care of our families. I mean, this is what I did as an eldest of 14, and I continue doing it in public service. But I also, God, I also love giving people a sense of hope that somebody's always going to be on their side and not going to sell them out. And I did that when the Koch brothers came to my backyard and dumped petroleum coke. I did that when this billionaire tried to build an international crossing without the permits. And everyone kept telling me, oh, you know, my Democratic colleagues kept telling me, you know, it's just that's just the way it is. And I said, what? How can that just be the way it is? I don't care if I get reelected. I'm going after him. And yeah, you know, I had a billionaire try to recall me, uh, three recall petitions, but we beat it. And we did it by grassroots door to door and taking him on and saying, no, you're not going to, you know, because I couldn't be bought. He couldn't take me on. And I we won the pushback. You're listening to Democracy in Color. We'll be back with more Rashida Tlaib. Hi, I'm Amy Allison, host of the podcast Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. Join our conversations with today's best and brightest political leaders, strategists, and thinkers. Our mission, to take our country back with the power of progressives of every race. And we invite you to join us. To learn more, visit democracyandcolor.com or follow us on Twitter at Democracy Color. I always think um, women running for public office and in public office are subject to such intense scrutiny. Uh, You've made a personal decision not to wear a hijab. Talk to me about that and if you've gotten pushback one way or another. Muslim women making that choice is a personal choice. And obviously I get, oh, is she Muslim enough? Or I get, well, why don't you wear it? But I don't ever take offense as much as people might think. Personally, I wore it for two years and I didn't have the sense that I, you know, the the scripture and the Quran, if it really applied a certain way. And, you know, my mother wears it and so does my sister. And I, you know, whatever anybody wants to to make that kind of personal choice, that's what it's wonderful about our country is that people can make that personal choice here. You know, when I was running for office, people really forgot like I was Muslim. People just remembered what I did and what I talked about. And I think that's really important for anybody out there. If you wear the hijab, if you're Latino, if you're African-American, we underestimate the fact that we can outwork some of those kind of stereotypical things and things that create barriers for people to really see that you do want to serve their families and you do want to help better their lives. And that's how I've been able to make history over and over again is primarily going door to door, speaking to families one-on-one. It is something I actually truly enjoy. And I love the fact that, yeah, sometimes a resident would come into my neighborhood service center and say, and asks my staff, not myself, but they'll say, you know, is she really Muslim? Because whatever they're dealing with internally, the stereotypical thing of how can somebody like her with a different faith care about me? And I'm glad that I'm challenging whatever struggles they're having in their mind, like how can she be Muslim and really be doing this for me? And I want people to see me as like, no, I'm a mother just like you, and this is my community as much as yours, and we're all one. Mm. You once told a story about how your youngest son, Adam, said, don't worry, Mama, if anyone asks if I'm Muslim, I'll lie about it. 
Now, that must have been crushing at some it was level, but also, Amy. it was, yeah. Amy, uh, you know, we all, and I think mothers know this more than anybody, but it's number one job, protecting them, making them feel like, you know, whatever they are, whatever they want to be, it's a beautiful thing. And for me and his dad, you know, we were talking about this awful, awful cartoon in the USA Today, a newspaper depicting um, Muslims as like Nazis. And, you know, I was just struggling a lot with it and saying, you know, they're just going to come and kill us or they're going to see us as Muslims, as like Nazis, you know, comparing us to that. And, you know, my beautiful, at that time, 90-year-old son walks in and this is a kid that wants to be a meteorologist and is, you know, truly proud of what I'm doing and very, very proud of, you know, the fact that his grandparents are from Palestine. And, you know, when he came into that room and looked up at me with his brown eyes and said, Mama, you know, don't worry if anybody asks uh, if I'm Muslim, I'll lie and tell them I'm not. I, you know, I cried more. <laughs> and, you know, poor Adam was just like, I'm sorry. And I was like, no, I know you said it because you were worried that I was worried about you and others. But I want you never, ever, ever, ever deny who you are. Be proud of who you are. You're not the problem. They are. And we continue to talk a lot about it because he also heard, obviously, Dr. Ben Carson, who grew up in the same neighborhood as I did, say that, you know, Muslims shouldn't be president of the United States. I mean, so it's an ongoing dialogue and conversation that I'm having with my two boys. And I can imagine, I mean, he is young enough where Barack Obama, who was attacked for being a Muslim by the right wing, that was something that was just in the air the whole time, his whole childhood. That has uh, had an impact not only on your son, but a whole generation of young people in this country. Yeah, but, you know, the benefit, and, and I tell this to people, you know, Adam is in Detroit, right? The civil rights movement, is a, there's a memory, there's a, a mural, there, there's some sort of uh, reminder of this strong historical movement that I feel like is still going on. And you should hear him talk about Martin Luther King, Dr. King, and you should hear him talk about, you know, even the labor movement and how his grandfather was part of the UAW. I do think that it's making him stronger. Super excited about uh, your plans, not only just impeaching uh, the occupant of the White House, but uh, in your plans uh, going forward. And I just I could talk to you for another you know hour about this. So, but I, I was hoping that we could do a tradition that's here in Democracy and Color. This is our third season. Uh, so we've been doing okay. this for a while. Uh, oh, Tim, boy. I want you to play. Yes. I OK, am. it's called This or That. Basically, our producers come up with this. <laughs> Do not overthink this, okay? It's just boom. All right. Okay, I'm going to start with something easy for you. Hot cider and donuts or coffee and bagel? Oh, coffee and bagel. Okay, why? Oh, I don't know. I just, it's coffee. <laughs> I don't even care about the bagel. It's coffee. <laughs> okay, okay. I think I've only been in Detroit one time. I don't really know, but I got to ask you this. This is controversial now. Tigers or lions? Oh, neither. <laughs> and let me tell you why. What? Let me tell you why. I, I, you know, I've been kind of on the other end when it comes to corporate welfare tax breaks and the families that own these 
giant stadiums, I all I see is the shifting of public money into these, you know, adult playgrounds. No offense to people. And you know, trust me, I have actually gotten hate mail from hockey fans who said, how can you not support hockey, you know, Red Wings? And I said, it's not about the Red Wings. It's about, you know, it's not about the Lions. It's about the fact that $18 million got shifted away from classrooms into a hockey stadium yes. for a billionaire. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't look at sports the same way, Amy and yeah. Tim. I just can't. And so right. I don't look All at right. it. No, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Let's get one more in there. Hummus or baba ganoush? Oh, hummus. Why? Because hummus, you can do all kinds of things to hummus. Let me tell you. Have you ever tried it with, I don't know if any of you are vegetarians, but you can actually put like ground beef on top with a little bit of drizzle of olive oil. Oh, it's delicious. Wow. What? Oh, yeah. Right in that now. Yes. There's so much about the world I don't know. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> it is. It's incredible. Rashida Tlaib, thanks so much for joining us on Democracy in Color. Best of luck to you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Democracy in Color. Big thanks to Tim Alina and the Courage Campaign. Our editor is Chiquita Pascal. Our producer is Paula Mardo, with administrative support by LaVon Briggs. Our theme song is Truckee CA by Otis McDonald. Democracy in Color is produced by Lentigua Williams & Co. If you appreciate this show as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can learn more about us at democracyandcolor.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Tell your friends, your colleagues, and your neighbors to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.